Chapter sixty two, part two of the Golden Bough. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Golden Bough by Sir James Fraser. Chapter sixty two, part two. The Fire Festivals of Europe. Section five. The Midsummer Fires but the season at which these fire festivals have been most generally held all over europe is the summer solstice that is midsummer eve or the twenty-third of june or midsummer day or the twenty-fourth of june a faint tinge of christianity has been given to them by naming midsummer day after st john the baptist but we cannot doubt that the celebration dates from a time long before the beginning of our era the summer solstice or midsummer day is the great turning point in the sun's career when after climbing higher and higher day by day in the sky the luminary stops and thenceforth retraces his steps down the heavenly road such a moment could not but be regarded with anxiety by primitive man so soon as he began to observe and ponder the courses of the great lights across the celestial vault and having still to learn his own powerlessness in face of the vast cyclic changes of nature he may have fancied that he could help the sun in his seeming decline could prop his failing steps and rekindle the sinking flame of the red lamp in his feeble hand in some such thoughts as these the midsummer festivals of our european peasantry may perhaps have taken their rise whatever their origin they have prevailed all over this quarter of the globe from ireland on the west to russia on the east and from norway and sweden on the north to spain and greece on the south according to a medieval writer the three great features of the midsummer celebration were the bonfires the procession with torches round the fields and the custom of rolling a wheel he tells us that boys burned bones and filth of various kinds to make a foul smoke and that the smoke drove away certain noxious dragons which at this time excited by the summer heat copulated in the air and poisoned the wells and rivers by dropping their seed into them and he explains the custom of trundling a wheel to mean that the sun now having reached the highest point in the ecliptic begins thenceforth to descend the main features of the midsummer fire festival resemble those which we have found to characterize the vernal festivals of fire the similarity of the two sets of ceremonies will plainly appear from the following examples a writer of the first half of the sixteenth century informs us that in almost every village and town of germany public bonfires were kindled on the eve of st john and young and old of both sexes gathered about them and passed the time in dancing and singing people on this occasion wore chaplets of mugwort and vervain and they looked at the fire through bunches of larkspur which they held in their hands believing that this would preserve their eyes in a healthy state throughout the year as each departed he threw the mugwort and vervain into the fire saying may all my ill luck depart and be burnt up with ease at lower cones a village situated on a hillside overlooking the moselle the midsummer festival used to be celebrated as follows a quantity of straw was collected on the top of the steep stromberg hill every inhabitant 
or at least every householder, had to contribute his share of straw to the pile. At nightfall, the whole male population, men and boys, mustered on the top of the hill. The women and girls were not allowed to join them, but had to take up their position at a certain spring halfway down the slope. On the summit stood a huge wheel, completely encased in some of the straw, which had been jointly contributed by the villagers. The rest of the straw was made into torches. From each side of the wheel, the axle-tree projected about three feet, thus furnishing handles to the lads who were to guide it in its descent. The mayor of the neighboring town of Cirque, who always received a basket of cherries for his services, gave the signal. A lighted torch was applied to the wheel, and as it burst into flames, two young fellows, strong-limbed and swift of foot, seized the handles and began running with it down the slope. A great shout went up. Every man and boy waved a blazing torch in the air, and took care to keep it alight so long as the wheel was trundling down the hill. The great object of the young men who guided the wheel was to plunge it blazing into the water of the Moselle, but they rarely succeeded in their efforts, for the vineyards which cover the greater part of the declivity impeded their progress, and the wheel was often burned out before it reached the river. As it rolled past the women and girls at the spring, they raised cries of joy which were answered by the men on the top of the mountain, and the shouts were echoed by the inhabitants of neighboring villages who watched the spectacle from their hills on the opposite bank of the Moselle. If the fiery wheel was successfully conveyed to the bank of the river and extinguished in the water, the people looked for an abundant vintage that year, and the inhabitants of Cones had the right to exact a wagon-load of white wine from the surrounding vineyards. On the other hand, they believed that, if they neglected to perform the ceremony, the cattle would be attacked by giddiness and convulsions, and would dance in their stalls. Down to at least the middle of the nineteenth century, the midsummer fires used to blaze all over Upper Bavaria. They were kindled especially on the mountains, but also far and wide in the lowlands, and we are told that in the darkness and stillness of night, the moving groups, lit up by the flickering glow of the flames, presented an impressive spectacle. Cattle were driven through the fire to cure the sick animals, and to guard such as were sound against plague and harm of every kind throughout the year. Many a householder on that day put out the fire on the domestic hearth and rekindled it by means of a brand taken from the midsummer bonfire. The people judged of the height to which the flax would grow in the year by the height to which the flames of the bonfire rose, and whoever leapt over the burning pile was sure not to suffer from backache in reaping the corn at harvest. In many parts of Bavaria, it was believed that the flax would grow as high as the young people leapt over the fire. In others, the old folk used to plant three charred sticks from the bonfire in the fields, believing that this would make the flax grow tall. Elsewhere, an extinguished brand was put in the roof of the house to protect it against fire. In the towns about Würzburg, the bonfires used to be kindled in the marketplaces, and the young people who jumped over them wore garlands of flowers, especially of mugwort and vervain, and carried sprigs of larkspur in their hands. They thought that such as looked at the fire holding a bit of larkspur before their face would be troubled by no malady of the eyes throughout the year. Further, 
it was customary at Würzburg in the sixteenth century for the bishop's followers to throw burning discs of wood into the air from the mountainside which overhangs the town. The discs were discharged by means of flexible rods, and in their flight through the darkness presented the appearance of fiery dragons. Similarly in Swabia, lads and lasses, hand in hand, leap over the midsummer bonfire, praying that the hemp may grow three ells high, and they set fire to wheels of straw and send them rolling down the hill. Sometimes, as the people sprang over the midsummer bonfire, they cried out, Flax! Flax! May the flax this year grow seven ells high! At Rottenburg, a rude effigy in human form called the Angleman used to be enveloped in flowers and then burnt in the midsummer fire by boys, who afterwards leapt over the glowing embers. So in Baden, the children collected fuel from house to house for the midsummer bonfire on St. John's Day, and lads and lasses leaped over the fire in couples. Here, as elsewhere, a close connection was traced between these bonfires and the harvest. In some places, it was thought that those who leaped over the fires would not suffer from backache at reaping. Sometimes, as the young folk sprang over the flames, they cried, Grow, that the hemp may be three ells high. This notion that the hemp or the corn would grow as high as the flames blazed, or as people jumped over them, seems to have been widespread in Baden. It was held that the parents of the young people who bounded highest over the fire would have the most abundant harvest, and on the other hand, if a man contributed nothing to the bonfire, it was imagined that there would be no blessing on his crops, and that his hemp in particular would never grow. At Ebersleden, near Sangerhausen, a high pole was planted in the ground, and a tar-barrel was hung from it by a chain which reached to the ground. The barrel was then set on fire, and swung round a pole amid shouts of joy. In Denmark and Norway also, midsummer fires were kindled on St. John's Eve on roads, open spaces, and hills. People in Norway thought that the fires banished sickness from among the cattle. Even yet, the fires are said to be lighted all over Norway on midsummer eve. They are kindled in order to keep off the witches, who are said to be flying from all parts that night to the Blocksburg, where the big witch lives. In Sweden, the eve of St. John, or St. Hans, is the most joyous night of the whole year. Throughout some parts of the country, especially in the provinces of Bohus and Scania, and in the districts bordering on Norway, it is celebrated by the frequent discharge of firearms and by huge bonfires, formerly called Baldur's Bale Fires, or Baldur's Balar which are kindled at dusk on hills and eminences and throw a glare of light over the surrounding landscape. The people dance round the fires and leap over or through them. In parts of Norland on St. John's Eve, the bonfires are lit at the crossroads. The fuel consists of nine different sorts of wood, and the spectators cast into the flames a kind of toadstool in order to counteract the power of the trolls and other evil spirits who are believed to be abroad that night. For at that mystic season, the mountains open, and from their cavernous depths, the uncanny crew pours forth to dance and disport themselves for a time. 
the peasants believe that should any of the trolls be in the vicinity they will show themselves and if an animal for example a he or she goat happens to be seen near the blazing crackling pile the peasants are firmly persuaded that it is no other than the evil one in person further it deserves to be remarked that in sweden st john's eve is a festival of water as well as of fire for certain holy springs are then supposed to be endowed with wonderful medicinal virtues and many sick people resort to them for the healing of their infirmities in austria the midsummer customs and superstitions resemble those of germany thus in some parts of the tyrol bonfires are kindled and burning discs hurled into the air in the lower valley of the inn a tatterdemalion effigy is carted about the village on midsummer day and then burned he is called the lotter which has been corrupted into luther at ambras one of the villages where martin luther is thus burned in effigy they say that if you go through the village between eleven and twelve on st john's night and wash yourself in three wells you will see all who are to die in the following year at Graz on St. John's Eve, or the 23rd of June, the common people used to make a puppet called the Tatterman, which they dragged to the bleaching ground and pelted with burning besoms till it took fire. At Riot, in the Tyrol, people believed that the flax would grow as high as they leaped over the midsummer fire, and they took pieces of charred wood from the fire and stuck them in their flax fields the same night leaving them there till the flax harvest had been got in. In Lower Austria, bonfires are kindled on the heights, and the boys cape around them, brandishing lighted torches drenched in pitch. Whoever jumps thrice across the fire will not suffer from fever within the year. Cartwheels are often smeared with pitch, ignited, and sent rolling and blazing down the hillsides. All over Bohemia, Bonfires still burn on Midsummer Eve. In the afternoon, boys go about with handcarts from house to house, collecting fuel and threatening with evil consequences the curmudgeons who refuse them a dole. Sometimes the young men fell a tall straight fir in the woods and set it up on a height, where the girls deck it with nosegays, wreaths of leaves, and red ribbons. Then brushwood is piled about it, and at nightfall the whole is set on fire. While the flames break out, the young men climb the tree and fetch down the wreaths which the girls had placed on it. After that, lads and lasses stand on opposite sides of the fire and look at one another through the wreaths to see whether they will be true to each other and marry within the year. Also, the girls throw the wreaths across the flames to the men, and woe to the awkward swain who fails to catch the wreath thrown to him by his sweetheart. When the blaze has died down, each couple takes hands and leaps thrice across the fire. He or she who does so will be free from ague throughout the year, and the flax will grow as high as the young folks leap. A girl who sees nine bonfires on Midsummer Eve will marry before the year is out. The singed wreaths are carried home and carefully preserved throughout the year. During thunderstorms, a bit of the wreath is burned on the hearth with a prayer. Some of it is given to kind that are sick or calving, and some of it serves to fumigate house and cattle stall, that man and beast may keep hale and well. Sometimes an old cartwheel is smeared with resin, ignited, and sent rolling down the hill, 
Often, the boys collect all the worn-out besoms they can get hold of, dip them in pitch, and having set them on fire, wave them about or throw them high into the air. Or they rush down the hillside in troops, brandishing the flaming brooms and shouting. The stumps of the brooms and embers from the fire are preserved and stuck in cabbage gardens to protect the cabbages from caterpillars and gnats. Some people insert charred sticks and ashes from the midsummer bonfire in their sown fields and meadows, in their gardens and the roofs of their houses, as a talisman against lightning and foul weather. Or they fancy that the ashes placed in the roof will prevent any fire from breaking out in the house. In some districts they crown or gird themselves with mugwort while the midsummer fire is burning, for this is supposed to be a protection against ghosts, witches, and sickness. In particular, a wreath of mugwort is a sure preventative of sore eyes. Sometimes the girls look at the bonfires through garlands of wild flowers, praying the fire to strengthen their eyes and eyelids. She who does this thrice will have no sore eyes all that year. In some parts of Bohemia, they used to drive the cows through the midsummer fire to guard them against witchcraft. In Slavonic countries also, the midsummer festival is celebrated with similar rites. We have already seen that in Russia on the eve of St. John, young men and maidens jump over a bonfire in couples, carrying a straw effigy of Kupalo in their arms. In some parts of Russia, an image of Kupalo is burnt or thrown into a stream on St. John's night. Again, in some districts of Russia, the young folk wear garlands of flowers and girdles of holy herbs, which they spring through the smoke or flames, and sometimes they drive the cattle also through the fire in order to protect the animals against wizards and witches, who are then ravenous after milk. In Little Russia, a stake is driven into the ground on St. John's night, wrapped in straw and set on fire. As the flames rise, the peasant women throw birchen boughs into them, saying, May the flax be as tall as this bough. In Ruthenia, the bonfires are lighted by a flame procured by the friction of wood. While the elders of the party are engaged in thus churning the fire, the rest maintain a respectful silence. But when the flame bursts from the wood, they break forth into joyous songs. As soon as the bonfires are kindled, the young people take hands and leap in pairs through the smoke, if not through the flames, and after that the cattle in their turn are driven through the fire. In many parts of Prussia and Lithuania, great fires are kindled on Midsummer Eve. All the heights are ablaze with them, as far as the eye can see. The fires are supposed to be a protection against witchcraft, thunder, hail, and cattle disease, especially if next morning the cattle are driven over the places where the fire burned. Above all, the bonfires ensure the farmer against the arts of witches who try to steal the milk from his cows by charms and spells. That is why next morning you may see the young fellows who lit the bonfire going from house to house and receiving jugfuls of milk. And for the same reason, they stick burrs and mugwort on the gate or the hedge through which the cows go to pasture, because that is supposed to be a preservative against witchcraft. In Masuren, a district of eastern Prussia inhabited by a branch of the Polish family, it is the custom on the evening of Midsummer Day 
to put out all the fires in the village. Then an oaken stake is driven into the ground, and a wheel is fixed on it, as on an axle. This wheel the villagers, working by relays, cause to revolve with great rapidity till fire is produced by friction. Everyone takes home a lighted brand from the new fire, and with it rekindles the fire on the domestic hearth. In Serbia, on Midsummer Eve, herdsmen light torches of birch bark and march round the sheepfolds and cattle stalls, then they climb the hills and there allow the torches to burn out. Among the Magyars in Hungary, the Midsummer Fire Festival is marked by the same features that meet us in so many parts of Europe. On Midsummer Eve, in many places, it is customary to kindle bonfires on heights and to leap over them, and from the manner in which the young people leap, the bystanders predict whether they will marry soon. On this day also, many Hungarian swineherds make fire by rotating a wheel round a wooden axle wrapped in hemp, and through the fire thus made, they drive their pigs to preserve them from sickness. The Estonians of Russia, who, like the Magyars, belong to the great Turanian family of mankind, also celebrate the summer solstice in the usual way. They think that the St. John's fire keeps witches from the cattle, and they say that he who does not come to it will have his barley full of thistles and his oats full of weeds. In the Estonian island of Ossel, while they throw fuel into the midsummer fire, they call out, Weeds to the fire, flax to the field! Or they fling three billets into the flames, saying, Flax, grow long! And they take charred sticks from the bonfire home with them, and keep them to make the cattle thrive. In some parts of the island, the bonfire is formed by piling brushwood and other combustibles round a tree, at the top of which a flag flies. Whoever succeeds in knocking down the flag with a pole before it begins to burn will have good luck. Formerly, the festivities lasted till daybreak, and ended in scenes of debauchery which looked doubly hideous by the glowing light of a summer morning. When we pass from the east to the west of Europe, we still find the summer solstice celebrated with rites of the same general character. Down to about the middle of the nineteenth century, the custom of lighting bonfires at midsummer prevailed so commonly in France that there was hardly a town or a village, we are told, where they were not kindled. People danced round and leapt over them, and took charred sticks from the bonfire home with them to protect the houses against lightning, conflagrations, and spells. In Brittany, apparently, the custom of the midsummer bonfires is kept up to this day. When the flames have died down, the whole assembly kneels round about the bonfire, and an old man prays aloud. Then they all rise and march thrice round the fire. At the third turn, they stop, and every one picks up a pebble and throws it on the burning pile. After that, they disperse. In Brittany and Berry, it is believed that a girl who dances round nine midsummer bonfires will marry within the year. In the valley of the Orne, the custom was to kindle the bonfire just at the moment when the sun was about to dip below the horizon, and the peasants drove their cattle through the fires to protect them against witchcraft, especially against the spells of witches and wizards who attempted to steal milk and butter. At Jumieges in Normandy, down to the first half of the nineteenth century, the Midsummer Festival was marked by certain singular features which bore the stamp of a very high antiquity. Every year, 
on the 23rd of June, the eve of St. John, the Brotherhood of the Green Wolf chose a new chief or master, who had always to be taken from the hamlet of Conihout. On being elected, the new head of the Brotherhood assumed the title of the Green Wolf, and donned a peculiar costume consisting of a long green mantle and a very tall green hat of a conical shape and without a brim. Thus arrayed, he stalked solemnly at the head of the brothers, chanting the hymn of St. John, the crucifix and holy banner leading the way, to the place called Shoke. Here the procession was met by the priest, precentors, and choir, who conducted the brotherhood to the parish church. After hearing Mass, the company adjourned to the house of the Green Wolf, where a simple repast was served up to them. At night, a bonfire was kindled to the sound of handbells by a young man and a young woman, both decked with flowers. Then the Green Wolf and his brothers, with their hoods down on their shoulders and holding each other by the hand, ran round the fire after the man who had been chosen to be the Green Wolf of the following year. Though only the first and the last man of the chain had a hand free, their business was to surround and seize thrice the future Green Wolf, who, in his efforts to escape, belabored the brothers with a long wand which he carried. When at last they succeeded in catching him, they carried him to the burning pile and made as if they would throw him on it. This ceremony over, they returned to the house of the Green Wolf, where a supper, still of the most meagre fare, was set before them. Up till midnight a sort of religious solemnity prevailed. But at the stroke of twelve all this was changed. Constraint gave way to license. Pious hymns were replaced by Bacchanalian ditties, and the shrill quavering notes of the village fiddle hardly rose above the roar of voices that went up from the merry brotherhood of the Green Wolf. Next day, the 24th of June, or Midsummer Day, was celebrated by the same personages with the same noisy gaiety. One of the ceremonies consisted in parading, to the sound of musketry, an enormous loaf of consecrated bread, which, rising in tears, was surmounted by a pyramid of verdure adorned with ribbons. After that, the holy handbells, deposited on the step of the altar, were entrusted as insignia of office to the man who was to be the Green Wolf next year. At Chateau Thierry, in the department of Eisne, the custom of lighting bonfires and dancing round them at the Midsummer Festival of St. John lasted down to about 1850. The fires were kindled, especially when June had been rainy, and the people thought that the lighting of the bonfires would cause the rain to cease. In the Vosges, it is still customary to kindle bonfires upon the hilltops of Midsummer Eve. The people believe that the fires help to preserve the fruits of the earth and ensure good crops. Bonfires were lit in almost all the hamlets of Poitou on the eve of St. John. People marched round them thrice, carrying a branch of walnut in their hand. Shepherdesses and children passed sprigs of mullein or verbascum, and nuts across the flames. The nuts were supposed to cure toothache, and the mullein to protect the cattle from sickness and sorcery. When the fire died down, people took some of the ashes home with them, either to keep them in the house as a preservative against thunder, or to scatter them on the fields for the purpose of destroying corn cockles and darnel. In Poitou, also, 
it is used to be customary on the eve of St. John to trundle a blazing wheel wrapped in straw over the fields to fertilize them. In the mountainous part of Cominges, a province of southern France, the midsummer fire is made by splitting open the trunk of a tall tree, stuffing the crevasse with shavings, and igniting the hole. A garland of flowers is fastened to the top of the tree, and at the moment when the fire is lighted, the man who was last married has to climb up a ladder and bring the flowers down. In the flat parts of the same district, the materials of the midsummer bonfires consist of fuel piled in the usual way, but they must be put together by men who have been married since the last midsummer festival, and each of these benedicts is obliged to lay a wreath of flowers on the top of the pile. In Provence, the midsummer fires are still popular. Children go from door to door begging for fuel, and they are seldom sent away empty. Formerly, the priest, the mayor, and the aldermen used to walk in procession to the bonfire, and even dine to light it, after which the assembly marched thrice round the burning pile. At Eich, a nominal king, chosen from among the youth for his skill in shooting at a popinjay, presided over the midsummer festival. He selected his own officers, and escorted by a brilliant train marched to the bonfire, kindled it, and was the first to dance round it. Next day he distributed largesse to his followers. His reign lasted a year, during which he enjoyed certain privileges. He was allowed to attend mass celebrated by the commander of the Knights of St. John on St. John's Day. The right of hunting was accorded to him, and soldiers might not be quartered in his house. At Marseilles, also on this day, one of the guilds chose a king of the Barach, or double axe, but it does not appear that he kindled the bonfire, which is said to have been lighted with great ceremony by the prefet and other authorities. In Belgium, the custom of kindling the midsummer bonfires has long disappeared from the great cities, but it is still kept up in rural districts and small towns. In that country, the eve of St. Peter's Day, or the 29th of June, is celebrated by bonfires and dances exactly like those which commemorate St. John's Eve. Some people say that the fires of St. Peter, like those of St. John, are lighted in order to drive away dragons. In French Flanders, down to 1789, a straw figure representing a man was always burned in the midsummer bonfire, and a figure of a woman was burned on St. Peter's Day, the 29th of June. In Belgium, people jump over the midsummer bonfires as a preventative of colic, and they keep the ashes at home to hinder fire from breaking out. The custom of lighting bonfires at midsummer has been observed in many parts of our own country, and as usual people danced round and leapt over them. In Wales, three or nine different kinds of wood and charred faggots carefully preserved from the last midsummer were deemed necessary to build the bonfire, which was generally done on rising ground. In the Vale of Glamorgan, a cartwheel swathed in straw used to be ignited and sent rolling down the hill. If it kept alight all the way down and blazed for a long time, an abundant harvest was expected. On Midsummer Eve, people in the Isle of Man were wont to light fires to the windward of every field so that the smoke might pass over the corn, and they folded their cattle and carried blazing furs or gorse round them several times. In Ireland, cattle especially barren cattle, were driven through the midsummer fires 
and the ashes were thrown on the fields to fertilize them, or live coals were carried into them to prevent blight. In Scotland, the traces of midsummer fires are few, but at that season in the highlands of Perthshire, cowherds used to go round their folds thrice, in the direction of the sun with lighted torches. This they did to purify the flocks and herds, and to keep them from falling sick. The practice of lighting bonfires on Midsummer Eve, and dancing or leaping over them is, or was till recently, common all over Spain and in some parts of Italy and Sicily. In Malta, great fires are kindled in the streets and squares of towns and villages on the eve of St. John, or Midsummer Eve. Formerly the Grand Master of the Order of St. John used on that evening to set fire to a heap of pitch barrels placed in front of the sacred hospital. In Greece, too, the custom of kindling fires on St. John's Eve and jumping over them is said to be still universal. One reason assigned for it is a wish to escape from the fleas. According to another account, the women cry out as they leap over the fire, I leave my sins behind me. In Lesbos, the fires on St. John's Eve are usually lighted by threes, and the people spring thrice over them, each with a stone on his head, saying, I jump the hare's fire, my head a stone. In Kalimnos, the midsummer fire is supposed to ensure abundance in the coming year, as well as deliverance from fleas. The people dance round the fire singing, with stones on their heads, and then jump over the blaze or the glowing embers. When the fire is burning low, they throw the stones into it, and when it is nearly out, they make crosses on their legs and go straight away and bathe in the sea. The custom of kindling bonfires on Midsummer Day or on Midsummer Eve is widely spread among the Mohammedan peoples of North Africa, particularly in Morocco and Algeria. It is common both to the Berbers and to many of the Arabs and Arabic-speaking tribes. In these countries, Midsummer Day, or the 24th of June, Old Style, is called La Ansara. The fires are lit in the courtyards, at crossroads, in the fields, and sometimes on the threshing floors. Plants which in burning give out a thick smoke and an aromatic smell are much sought after for fuel on these occasions. Among the plants used for the purpose are giant fennel, thyme, rue, cherval seed, chamomile, germanium, and pennyroyal. People expose themselves, and especially their children, to the smoke, and drive it towards the orchards and the crops. They also leap across the fires. In some places, everybody ought to repeat the leap seven times. Moreover, they take burning brands from the fires and carry them through the houses in order to fumigate them. They pass things through the fire and bring the sick into contact with it, while they utter prayers for their recovery. The ashes of the bonfires are also reputed to possess beneficial properties. Hence, in some places, people rub their hair or their bodies with them. In some places, they think that by leaping over the fires, they rid themselves of all misfortune, and that childless couples thereby obtain offspring. Berbers of the Rif province, in northern Morocco, make great use of fires at midsummer for the good of themselves, their cattle, and their fruit trees. They jump over the bonfires in the belief that this will preserve them in good health, and they light fires under fruit trees to keep the fruit from falling untimely and they imagine that by rubbing a paste of the ashes on their hair, they prevent the hair from falling off their heads. 
In all these Moroccan customs, we are told, the beneficial effect is attributed wholly to the smoke, which is supposed to be imbued with a magical quality that removes misfortune from men, animals, fruit trees, and crops. The celebration of a midsummer festival by Mohammedan peoples is particularly remarkable because the Mohammedan calendar, being purely lunar and uncorrected by intercalation, necessarily takes no note of festivals which occupy fixed points in the solar year. All strictly Mohammedan feasts, being pinned to the moon, slide gradually with that luminary through the whole period of the earth's revolution about the sun. The fact of itself seems to prove that among the Mohammedan peoples of North Africa, as among the Christian peoples of Europe, the midsummer festival is quite independent of the religion which the people publicly profess, and is a relic of a far older paganism. Section 6. The Halloween Fires From the foregoing survey, we may infer that among the heathen forefathers of the European peoples, the most popular and widespread fire festival of the year was the great celebration of Midsummer Eve or Midsummer Day. The coincidence of the festival with the summer solstice can hardly be accidental. Rather, we must suppose that our pagan ancestors purposely timed the ceremony of fire on earth to coincide with the arrival of the sun at the highest point of his course in the sky. If that was so, it follows that the old founders of the midsummer rites had observed the solstices, or turning points, of the sun's apparent path in the sky, and that they accordingly regulated their festal calendar to some extent by astronomical considerations. But while this may be regarded as fairly certain for what we may call the aborigines throughout a large part of the continent, it appears not to have been true of the Celtic peoples who inhabited the land's end of Europe, the islands and promontories that stretch out into the Atlantic Ocean on the northwest. The principal fire festivals of the Celts, which have survived, though in a restricted area and with diminished pomp, to modern times and even to our own day, were seemingly timed without any reference to the position of the sun in the heaven. They were two in number, and fell at an interval of six months, one being celebrated on the eve of May Day, and the other on An Hallow Even, or Halloween, as it is now commonly called, that is, on the 31st of October, the day preceding All Saints, or All Hallows Day. These dates coincide with none of the four great hinges on which the solar year revolves, to wit, the solstices and the equinoxes. Nor do they agree with the principal seasons of the agricultural year, the sowing in spring and the reaping in autumn. For when May Day comes, the seed has long been committed to the earth, and when November opens, the harvest has long been reaped and garnered, the fields lie bare, the fruit trees are stripped, and even the yellow leaves are fast fluttering to the ground. Yet, the first of May and the first of November mark turning points of the year in Europe. The one ushers in the genial heat and the rich vegetation of summer. The other heralds, if it does not share, the cold and barrenness of winter. Now these particular points of the year, as has been well pointed out by a learned and ingenious writer, while they are of comparatively little moment to the European husbandmen, do deeply concern the European herdsmen, 
for it is on the approach of summer that he drives his cattle out into the open to crop the fresh grass and it is on the approach of winter that he leads them back to the safety and shelter of the stall accordingly it seems not improbable that the celtic bisection of the year into two halves at the beginning of may and the beginning of november dates from a time when the celts were mainly a pastoral people dependent for their subsistence on their herds and when accordingly the great epochs of the year for them were the days on which the cattle went forth from the homestead in early summer and returned to it again in early winter even in central europe remote from the region now occupied by the celts a similar bisection of the year may be clearly traced to the great popularity on the one hand of may day and its eve or walpurgis night and on the other hand of the feast of all souls at the beginning of november which under a thin christian cloak conceals an ancient pagan festival of the dead hence we may conjecture that everywhere throughout europe the celestial division of the year according to the solstices was preceded by what we may call a terrestrial division of the year according to the beginning of summer and the beginning of winter be that as it may the two great celtic festivals of may day and the first of november or to be more accurate the eves of these two days closely resemble each other in the manner of their celebration and in the superstitions associated with them and alike by the antique character impressed upon both betray a remote and purely pagan origin the festival of may day or beltane as the celts called it which ushered in summer has already been described it remains to give some account of the corresponding festival of halloween which announced the arrival of winter of the two feasts halloween was perhaps of old the more important since the celts would seem to have dated the beginning of the year from it rather than from beltane in the isle of man one of the fortresses in which the celtic language and lore longest held out against the siege of the saxon invaders the first of november old style has been regarded as new year's day down to recent times thus manx murmurs used to go around on halloween old style singing in the manx language a sort of hogmany song which began to-night is new year's night hogunaa in ancient ireland a new fire used to be kindled every year on halloween or the eve of samhain and from this sacred flame all the fires in ireland were rekindled such a custom points strongly to samhain or all saints day that is the first of november as new year's day since the annual kindling of a new fire takes place most naturally at the beginning of the year in order that the blessed influence of the fresh fire may last throughout the whole period of twelve months another confirmation of the view that the celts dated their year from the first of november is furnished by the manifold modes of divination which were commonly resorted to by celtic peoples on halloween for the purpose of ascertaining their destiny especially their fortune in the coming year for when could these devices for prying into the future be more reasonably put in practice than at the beginning of the year as a season of omens and auguries halloween seems to have far surpassed beltane in the imagination of the celts 
from which we may with some probability infer that they reckoned their year from Halloween rather than Beltane. Another circumstance of great moment which points to the same conclusion is the association of the dead with Halloween. Not only among the Celts, but throughout Europe, Halloween, the night which marks the transition from autumn to winter, seems to have been of old the time of year when the souls of the departed were supposed to revisit their old homes in order to warm themselves by the fire and to comfort themselves with the good cheer provided for them in the kitchen or the parlor by their affectionate kinsfolk. It was, perhaps, a natural thought that the approach of winter should drive the poor, shivering, hungry ghosts from the bare fields and the leafless woodlands to the shelter of the cottage with its familiar fireside. Did not the lowing kine then troop back from the summer pastures in the forests and on the hills to be fed and cared for in the stalls, while the bleak winds whistled among the swaying boughs and the snowdrifts deepened in the hollows? And could the good man and the good wife deny to the spirits of their dead the welcome which they gave to the cows? But it is not only the souls of the departed who are supposed to be hovering unseen on the day, quote, when autumn to winter resigns the pale year, close quote. Witches then speed on their errands of mischief, some sweeping through the air on besoms, others galloping along the roads on tabby-cats, which for that evening are turned into coal-black steeds. The fairies, too, are all let loose, and hobgoblins of every sort roam freely about. Yet, while a glamour of mystery and awe has always clung to Halloween in the minds of the Celtic peasantry, the popular celebration of the festival has been, at least in modern times, by no means of a prevailing gloomy cast. On the contrary, it has been attended by picturesque features and merry pastimes, which rendered it the gayest night of all the year. Amongst the things which in the highlands of Scotland contributed to invest the festival with a romantic beauty, were the bonfires, which used to blaze at frequent intervals on the heights. Quote, on the last day of autumn, children gathered ferns, tar-barrels, the long thin stalks called gainisg, and everything suitable for a bonfire. These were placed in a heap on some eminence near the house, and in the evening set fire to. The fires were called somnagen. There was one for each house, and it was an object of ambition who should have the biggest. Whole districts were brilliant with bonfires, and their glare across a highland loch, and from many eminences, formed an exceedingly picturesque scene. Close quote. Like the Beltane fires on the 1st of May, the Halloween bonfires seem to have been kindled most commonly in the Perthshire highlands. In the parish of Callander, they still blazed down to near the end of the 18th century. When the fire had died down, the ashes were carefully collected in the form of a circle, and a stone was put in, near the circumference, for every person of the several families interested in the bonfire. Next morning, if any of these stones was found to be displaced or injured, the people made sure that the person represented by it was fay or devoted and that he could not live twelve months from that day. At Balkuhider, down to the latter part of the nineteenth century, 
each household kindled its bonfire at Halloween, but the custom was chiefly observed by children. The fires were lighted on any high knoll near the house. There was no dancing round them. Halloween fires were also lighted in some districts of the northeast of Scotland, such as Buchan. Villagers and farmers alike must have their fire. In the villages, the boys went from house to house and begged a peat from each householder, usually with the words, Ges a pita, burn the witches. When they had collected enough peats, they piled them in a heap, together with straw, furs, and other combustible materials, and set the whole on fire. Then each of the youths, one after another, laid himself down on the ground as near to the fire as he could without being scorched, and thus lying, allowed the smoke to roll over him. The others ran through the smoke and jumped over their prostrate comrade. When the heap was burned down, they scattered the ashes, vying with each other who would scatter the most. In the northern part of Wales, it used to be customary for every family to make a great bonfire called Coelcoeth on Halloween. The fire was kindled on the most conspicuous spot near the house, and when it had nearly gone out, everyone threw into the ashes a white stone, which he had first marked. Then, having said their prayers round the fire, they went to bed. Next morning, as soon as they were up, they came to search out the stones, and if any one of them was found to be missing, they had a notion that the person who threw it would die before he saw another Halloween. According to Sir John Rees, the habit of celebrating Halloween by lighted bonfires on the hills is perhaps not yet extinct in Wales, and men still living can remember how the people who assisted at the bonfires would wait till the last spark was out, and then would suddenly take to their heels, shouting at the top of their voices, The cropped black sow sees the hindmost! The saying, as Sir John Rees justly remarks, implies that originally one of the company became a victim in dead earnest. Down to the present time, the saying is current in Carnarvonshire, where allusions to the cutty black sow are still occasionally made to frighten children. We can now understand why, in Lower Brittany, every person throws a pebble into the midsummer bonfire. Doubtless there, as in Wales and the highlands of Scotland, omens of life and death have at one time or other been drawn from the position and state of the pebbles on the morning of All Saints' Day. The custom, thus found among three separate branches of the Celtic stock, probably dates from a period before their dispersion, or at least from a time when alien races had not yet driven home the wedges of separation between them. In the Isle of Man also, another Celtic country, Halloween was celebrated down to modern times by the kindling of fires, accompanied with all the usual ceremonies designed to prevent the baneful influence of fairies and witches. Section 7. The Midwinter Fires If the heathen of ancient Europe celebrated, as we have good reason to believe, the season of midsummer with a great festival of fire, of which the traces have survived in many places down to our own time, it is natural to suppose that they should have observed with similar rites the corresponding season of midwinter, for midsummer and midwinter, or, in more technical language, the summer solstice and winter solstice, are the two great turning points in the sun's apparent course through the sky, 
and from the standpoint of primitive man, nothing might seem more appropriate than to kindle fires on earth at the two moments when the fire and heat of the great luminary in heaven begin to wax or to wane. In modern Christendom, the ancient fire festival of the winter solstice appears to survive, or to have survived down to recent years, in the old custom of the Yule log, clog, or block, as it was variously called in England. The custom was widespread in Europe, but seems to have flourished especially in England, France, and among the South Slavs, at least the fullest accounts of the custom come from these quarters. That the Yule log was only the winter counterpart of the midsummer bonfire, kindled within doors instead of in the open air on account of the cold and inclement weather of the season, was pointed out long ago by our English antiquary John Brand, and the view is supported by the many quaint superstitions attaching to the Yule log, superstitions which have no apparent connection with Christianity, but carry their heathen origin plainly stamped upon them. But while the two solstitial celebrations were both festivals of fire, the necessity or desirability of holding the winter celebration within doors lent it the character of a private or domestic festivity, which contrasts strongly with the publicity of the summer celebration, at which the people gathered on some open space or conspicuous height, kindled a huge bonfire in common, and danced and made merry round it together. Down to about the middle of the nineteenth century, the old rite of the Yule log was kept up in some parts of central Germany. Thus, in the valleys of the Sag and Lahn, the Yule log, a heavy block of oak, was fitted to the floor of the hearth, where, though it glowed under the fire, it was hardly reduced to ashes within a year. When the new log was laid next year, the remains of the old one were ground to powder and strewed over the fields during the twelve nights, which was supposed to promote the growth of the crops. In some villages of Westphalia, the practice was to withdraw the Yule log, or Christ brand, from the fire so soon as it was slightly charred. It was then kept carefully to be replaced on the fire whenever a thunderstorm broke, because the people believed that lightning would not strike a house in which the Yule log was smoldering. In other villages of Westphalia, the old custom was to tie up the Yule log in the last sheaf cut at harvest. In several provinces of France, and particularly in Provence, the custom of the Yule log, or Trefois, as it was called in many places, was long observed. A French writer of the 17th century denounces as superstitious, quote, the belief that a log called the Trefois, or Christmas brand, which you put on the fire for the first time on Christmas Eve, and continue to put on the fire for a little while every day till twelfth night, can, if kept under the bed, protect the house for a whole year from fire and thunder, that it can prevent the inmates from having sheblands on their heels in winter, that it can cure the cattle of many maladies, that if a piece of it be steeped in the water which cows drink, it helps them to calve, and lastly, that if the ashes of the log be strewn on the fields, it can save the wheat from mildew. In some parts of Flanders and France, the remains of the Yule log were regularly kept in the house under bed 
as a protection against thunder and lightning. In Barry, when thunder was heard, a member of the family used to take a piece of the log and throw it on the fire, which was believed to avert the lightning. Again, in Perigord, the charcoal and ashes were carefully collected and kept for healing swollen glands. The part of the trunk which has not been burnt in the fire is used by plowmen to make the wedge for their plow because they allege that it causes the seeds to thrive better, and the women keep pieces of it till twelfth night for the sake of their chickens. Some people imagine that they will have as many chickens as there are sparks that fly out of the brands of the log when they shake them, and others place the extinct brands under the bed to drive away vermin. In various parts of France, the charred log is thought to guard the house against sorcery as well as against lightning. In England, the customs and beliefs concerning the Yule log used to be similar. On the night of Christmas Eve, says the antiquary John Brand, quote, Our ancestors were wont to light up candles of an uncommon size, called Christmas candles, and lay a log of wood upon the fire, called a Yule clog or Christmas block, to illuminate the house and, as it were, to turn night into day. Close quote. The old custom was to light the Yule log with a fragment of its predecessor, which had been kept throughout the year for the purpose. Where it was so kept, the fiend could do no mischief. The remains of the log were also supposed to guard the house against fire and lightning. To this day, the ritual of bringing in the Yule log is observed with much solemnity among the southern Slavs, especially the Serbians. The log is usually a block of oak, but sometimes of olive or beech. They seem to think that they will have as many calves, lambs, pigs, and kids as they strike sparks out of the burning log. Some people carry a piece of the log out to the fields to protect them against hail. In Albania, down to recent years, it was a common custom to burn a yule log at Christmas, and the ashes of the fire were scattered on the fields to make them fertile. The Hazuls, a Slavonic people of the Carpathians, kindle fire by the friction of wood on Christmas Eve, old style, the 5th of January, and keep it burning till Twelfth Night. It is remarkable how common the belief appears to have been that the remains of the Yule log, if kept throughout the year, had power to protect the house against fire and especially against lightning. As the Yule log was frequently of oak, it seems possible that this belief may be a relic of the old Aryan creed which associated the oak tree with the god of thunder. Whether the curative and fertilizing virtues ascribed to the ashes of the Yule log, which are supposed to heal cattle as well as men, to enable cows to calve, and to promote the fruitfulness of the earth, may not be derived from the same ancient source, is a question which deserves to be considered. Section 8. The Need Fire The fire festivals hitherto described are all celebrated periodically at certain stated times of the year. But besides these regularly recurring celebrations, the peasants in many parts of Europe have been wont from time immemorial to resort to a ritual fire at irregular intervals in seasons of distress and calamity, above all when their cattle were attacked by epidemic disease. No account of the popular European fire festivals would be complete without some notice of these remarkable rites, 
which have all the greater claim on our attention because they may perhaps be regarded as the source and origin of all the other fire festivals certainly they must date from a very remote antiquity the general name by which they are known among the teutonic peoples is need fire sometimes the need fire was known as wild fire to distinguish it no doubt from the tame fire produced by more ordinary methods among slavonic peoples it is called living fire the history of the custom can be traced from the early middle ages when it was denounced by the church as a heathen superstition down to the first half of the nineteenth century when it was still occasionally practiced in various parts of germany england scotland and ireland among slavonic peoples it appears to have lingered even longer the usual occasion for performing the rite was an outbreak of plague or cattle disease for which the need fire was believed to be an infallible remedy the animals which were subjected to it included cows pigs horses and sometimes geese as a necessary preliminary to the kindling of the need fire all other fires and lights in the neighborhood were extinguished so that not so much as a spark remained alight for so long as even a night light burned in a house it was imagined that the need fire could not kindle sometimes it was deemed enough to put out all the fires in the village but sometimes the extinction extended to neighboring villages or to a whole parish in some parts of the highlands of scotland the rule was that all householders who dwelt within the two nearest running streams should put out their lights and fires on the day appointed usually the need fire was made in the open air but in some parts of serbia it was kindled in a dark room sometimes the place was a crossway or a hollow in a road in the highlands of scotland the proper places for performing the rite seem to have been knolls or small islands and rivers the regular method of producing the need fire was by the friction of two pieces of wood it might not be struck by flint and steel very exceptionally among some south slavs we read of a practice of kindling a need fire by striking a piece of iron on an anvil when the wood to be employed is specified it is generally said to be oak but on the lower rhine the fire was kindled by the friction of oak wood or fir wood in slavonic countries we hear of poplar pear and cornel wood being used for the purpose often the material is simply described as two pieces of dry wood sometimes nine different kinds of wood were deemed necessary but rather perhaps to be burned in the bonfire than to be rubbed together for the production of the need fire the particular mode of kindling the need fire varied in different districts a very common one was this two poles were driven into the ground about a foot and a half from each other each pole had in the side facing the other a socket into which a smooth crosspiece or roller was fitted the sockets were stuffed with linen and the two ends of the roller were rammed tightly into the sockets to make it more inflammable the roller was often coated with tar a rope was then wound round the roller and the free ends at both sides were gripped by two or more persons who by pulling the rope to and fro caused the roller to revolve rapidly till through the friction the linen in the sockets took fire the sparks were immediately caught in tow or oakum and waved about in a circle until they burst into a bright glow 
when straw was applied to it and the blazing straw used to kindle the fuel that had been stacked to make the bonfire often a wheel sometimes a cartwheel or even a spinning wheel formed part of the mechanism in aberdeenshire it was called the muckle wheel in the island of mole the wheel was turned from east to west over nine spindles of oak wood sometimes we are merely told that two wooden planks were rubbed together sometimes it was prescribed that the cartwheel used for the fire-making and the axle on which it turned should both be new similarly it was said that the rope which turned the roller should be new if possible it should be woven of strands taken from a gallows rope with which people had been hanged but this was a counsel of perfection rather than a strict necessity various rules were also laid down as to the kind of persons who might or should make the need fire sometimes it was said that the two persons who pulled the rope which twirled the roller should always be brothers or at least bear the same baptismal name. Sometimes it was deemed sufficient if they were both chaste young men. In some villages of Brunswick, people thought that if everybody who lent a hand in kindling the need fire did not bear the same Christian name, they would labor in vain. In Silesia, the tree employed to produce the need fire used to be felled by a pair of twin brothers. In the western islands of Scotland, the fire was kindled by eighty-one married men, who rubbed two great planks against each other, working in relays of nine. In North Oist, the nine times nine who made the fire were all first-begotten sons, but we are not told whether they were married or single. Among the Serbians, the need fire is sometimes kindled by a boy and girl between eleven and fourteen years of age, who work stark naked in a dark room. Sometimes it is made by an old man and an old woman, also in the dark. In Bulgaria, too, the makers of needfire strip themselves of their clothes. In Kathness, they divested themselves of all kinds of metal. If after long rubbing of the wood no fire was elicited, they concluded that some fire must still be burning in the village. So a strict search was made from house to house, any fire that might be found was put out and the negligent householder punished or upbraided indeed a heavy fine might be inflicted on him when the need fire was at last kindled the bonfire was lit from it and as soon as the blaze had somewhat died down the sick animals were driven over the glowing embers sometimes in a regular order of precedence first the pigs next the cows and last of all the horses sometimes they were driven twice or thrice through the smoke and flames so that occasionally some of them were scorched to death as soon as all the beasts were through the young folk would rush wildly at the ashes and cinders sprinkling and blackening each other with them those who were most blackened would march in triumph behind the cattle into the village and would not wash themselves for a long time from the bonfire people carried live embers home and used them to rekindle the fires in their houses. These brands, after being extinguished in water, they sometimes put in the mangers at which the cattle fed, and kept them there for a while. Ashes from the need fire were also strewed on the fields to protect the crops against vermin. Sometimes they were taken home to be employed as remedies in sickness, being sprinkled on the ailing part, or mixed in water and drunk by the patient. 
in the western islands of scotland and on the adjoining mainland as soon as the fire on the domestic hearth has been rekindled from the need fire a potful of water was set on it and the water thus heated was afterwards sprinkled upon the people infected with the plague or upon the cattle that were tainted by the murrain special virtue was attributed to the smoke of the bonfire in sweden fruit trees and nuts were fumigated with it in order that the trees might bear fruit and the nets catch fish in the highlands of scotland the need fire was accounted a sovereign remedy for witchcraft in the islands of mole when the fire was kindled as a cure for the murrain we hear of the rite being accompanied by the sacrifice of a sick heifer which was cut in pieces and burnt slavonian and bulgarian peasants conceive cattle plague as a foul fiend or vampire which can be kept at bay by interposing a barrier of fire between it and the herds a similar conception may perhaps have originally everywhere underlain the use of the need fire as a remedy for the murrain it appears that in some parts of germany the people did not wait for an outbreak of cattle plague but taking time by the forelock kindled a need fire annually to prevent the calamity similarly in poland the peasants are said to kindle fire in the village streets every year on st rochus day and to drive the cattle thrice through them in order to protect the beasts against the murrain we have seen that in the hebrides the cattle were in like manner driven annually round the beltane fires for the same purpose in some cantons of switzerland children still kindle a need fire by the friction of wood for the sake of dispelling a mist End of chapter 62